The Bowery Boys, episode 133, Red Hook, Brooklyn on the Waterfront. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Happy 2012, everybody. This is Greg Young with another episode of The Bowery Boys. And we were supposed to have a, a regular show with the two of us, but I got our schedule a little wrong. So we'll actually have that at the end of the month. But for now, I'll slide in a little solo show here to tide you over. And I'm indulging myself this time by exploring the history of a place that has endlessly fascinated me for years. The isolated Brooklyn waterfront neighborhood of Red Hook, a complicated and unusual place which harkens back to the roots of New York nautical history. For almost a century, Red Hook's docks and man-made piers were crucial to the American economy, and for a time, the area was Brooklyn's most ethnically diverse neighborhood. But Red Hook is probably better known in the popular imagination for its crime, a network of theft and violence that brought to prominence the city's biggest crime bosses, and a blighted neighborhood that was famously called, quote, the crack capital of America in the 1990s. And as a bonus here, this is also a little bit of the history of the neighborhood of Carroll Gardens, because up until the 1960s, it was actually considered a part of Red Hook. The neighborhood has been an inspiration for a lot of great American writers, and in particular, for one of the greatest films ever made by Hollywood. I'll let Marlon Brando elaborate. Charlie, was you. You remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. That was Marlon Brando from the movie On the Waterfront, a movie that was set along the dark cobblestone streets and the distressed sinking piers of Hoboken, New Jersey. But the many of the pivotal characters of the movie are actually based on those that lived and worked in Red Hook and the Brooklyn Waterfront. I'll get to how that all worked out in a minute. But first, let's situate Red Hook here. You'll find Red Hook in what they used to call South Brooklyn, basically referring to the whole region of old development that lies south of the Brooklyn Bridge. Red Hook faces into the New York Harbor and is actually surrounded by water on three sides. Its northwestern border is that narrow strip of water that separates the Brooklyn waterfront from Governor's Island. This is called the Buttermilk Channel. According to an old Dutch legend, the strait was once so shallow that during low tides, Brooklyn farmers would guide their milking cows over to Governor's Island to graze during the day. I guess these were their buttermilk milking cows, I guess. The south border of Red Hook is Gowanus Bay as it empties into the East River, and the eastern border is the Gowanus River itself. But defining the north side is that unmistakable 
elevated Gowanus Expressway, branching off to meet the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and then underground via the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, which then takes traffic to downtown Manhattan. So essentially, water on three fronts and lots of traffic on the other. All of this makes Red Hook a very lonely place, with no subway, of course, and only a single bus line. Now, waterfront property may be heavily valued today, but when the Dutch first arrived into the harbor in the 17th century, this area looked fairly unspectacular, an undistinguished marshy wetland that jutted out into the harbor. Arrivals noted the iron-rich reddish soil and referred to the area as Rode Hoek, Rode for red, and Hoek meaning point or place. In comparison, a little further south of this area, today's Bay Ridge would, back in the day, be called Yellow Hook. The Dutch began allotting land to farmers here in the 1630s. You'll still find the names Van Dyke and Van Brunt worn here on some of the street names today. The Van Dykes were even known for their river-operated ginger mill and their accompanying flour mill. But the larger Dutch developments were elsewhere, particularly upstream in Broekelen, the germ of the future city of Brooklyn. Rodehoek might have quietly passed the British period of New York history if not for the Revolutionary War. Fearful of encroaching British forces, George Washington's Continental Army constructed a fort near a grove of trees here in April of 1776. They called it Fort Defiance, bolstering those defenses that were being built on Governor's Island and all along the waterfront. Fort Defiance was able to fend off British warships in August of 1776 with its four large cannons that had been shipped down from a fort that was situated in West Point, New York. Some reports claim the efforts of the fort were singularly responsible for delaying the British frigate HMS Roebuck, just enough so that Washington and his wounded battalion were able to escape into New York under the fog of night. One of the most critical events in Red Hook history took place 150 miles upstream the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825, which linked the Hudson River with Lake Erie and created a trade route inland into the new United States. New York became the country's most important port, and Red Hook's prime waterfront became highly valued. By 1834, its wandering pleasant groves and its marshy meadows here were replaced by wharves and piers. And in that same year, the newly formed city of Brooklyn began mapping out roads and avenues down to Red Hook. Developers had the freedom to reinvent the land underneath them and even reshape the very waterfront itself. They took advantage of the fact that across the harbor in New York's wharf areas, by the 1830s, they were all completely overcrowded and in extremely poor shape. While Brooklynites were marveling at the debut of Greenwood Cemetery, which opened to the south of Red Hook in 1838, an even more startling project was being cooked up right here. When Colonel Daniel Richards began work on an enclosed artificial harbor that would allow ships to dock and unload here, regardless of weather and water conditions, and could be safeguarded against river pirates. The place was called the Atlantic Docks, a faux 40-acre harbor featuring miles of adjoining wharf, several warehouses, and nine gigantic grain elevators. Among the tallest structures in Brooklyn when the docks finally opened in 1847. Now, in my humble opinion, I don't like to go on about grain elevators here, but these docks, what we call the Atlantic Basin today, are one of the great underappreciated achievements in New York history. Early illustrations make the Atlantic docks look a little bit like Alexandria, Egypt, with huge vessels depositing a vast international array of cargo, grain from the Midwest, cotton from the South, sugar, salt, iron, and lumber, 
all transported into grand structures designed by prominent city designers such as Samuel Ruggles, who was the architect of Gramercy Park. The Atlantic Docks was joined by another much larger artificial harbor named Erie Basin, the creation of developer William Beard. On top of creating 135 acres of docks, I mean, that's a lot of docks. 135 acres of docks when it opened in 1864, the Erie Basin also changed the shape of Red Hook via landfill with a breakwater that's it's like an arm or a pocket knife that extends out into the water. You can still see that change today in maps. The Atlantic and Erie Basins attracted other large industrial businesses to Red Hook. Glassworks, brickmakers, iron foundries. There was a beer brewery here called India Wharf. It even attracted the interests of one Robert Augustus Cheesebro, who in 1870 invented a petroleum jelly called Vaseline and opened a Vaseline plant here in Red Hook. With industry came thousands of men to be employed here. The neighborhood would become dominated with Irish immigrants at first and then increasing to the 19th century with Italian immigrants. But there would also be a sizable Scandinavian population that resided here, a great number of African Americans after about 1880, and then at the start of the 20th century, Red Hook would see one of New York's very first Puerto Rican communities. The earliest workers lived in shanty towns. The biggest one in this area was called Slab City. These were soon eliminated by a large-scale construction of row houses and tenements that sprouted up from the waterfront and spread inward, filling up past Hamilton Avenue and up Columbia Street. Lands around the Gowanus River were drained to facilitate the demand for housing. In 1846, one surveyor named Richard Butts even brought a little innovation to the typical row house style by setting several blocks of buildings back from the street a little bit and in front created these gardens, or basically these became brownstones with front yards. Now, to those listening from elsewhere, New Yorkers don't commonly enjoy the luxury of a front yard garden, in most places anyway. By the mid-19th century, a vast chain of piers swept up the Brooklyn waterfront, up along Brooklyn Heights, and into the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and then meeting with the new industries that were forming on the banks of Williamsburg and Greenpoint. The cobblestone streets near Red Hook's warehouses were soon filled, naturally, with places that served booze. Early on in the 1840s, dives and brothel owners offered temptations in an area of Red Hook called Tinkerville, and another one called Slicksville, so named because it had only been partially drained of swampland. By the 1880s, it was Hamilton Avenue that had gained notoriety, quote, filled with saloons and dives, which made a specialty of catering to the generous and open-handed Norwegian sailors. Many a fine young man has been fleeced of his hard-earned money and has come to grief, morally and physically, along this thoroughfare. An article in 1872 wrote off all of Red Hook altogether, calling it, quote, a grand central and amalgamated cesspool and sink of low life in Brooklyn. They were not kidding around with that statement. There was naturally gang activity here, similar to that found across the water in Five Points and Corlears Hook. Gangs were frequently aligned based on ethnicity, Irish gangs versus Italian gangs, rough amorphous gangs of thugs and ne'er-do-wells, the Red Hook Rippers, the Gowanus Dukes. There was even a gang called the Five Points Juniors, a pre-teen version of the Five Points Gang. You know, that's, that's really cute. One member of the so-called South Brooklyn Rippers 
was a troubled teen who trolled the streets of Red Hook in his youth in the 1910s. The kids called him Scarface, and he kept that nickname even when his real name, Al Capone, became a lot better known. With Prohibition in the 1920s came the consolidation of gangs into better-operated mob organizations. Along the Brooklyn waterfront, the mob held strict control over operations and unholy alliances with labor unions, granting jobs to longshoremen and stevedores who paid their lofty dues with a little kickback. And the mob organized mass theft right off these cargo vessels. Millions of dollars of stolen property that, quote, fell off the truck, as they used to say. By the 1930s, gangsterism along the waterfront went pretty much unabated, even as living conditions here were gradually worsening by this time. Wait, did I say the 1930s? Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia and Parks Commissioner Robert Moses. Yes, the city came to a certain kind of rescue, fighting back against lingering deterioration in some predictable ways. Moses used some of that federal WPA money and built the last of 11 city swimming pools here in 1936. It was called the Red Hook Play Center, and it was designed in the art modern style, and possibly the only thing in the art modern style in all of Red Hook. In 1938 came a most fateful architectural decision, the Red Hook Houses, a monster public housing project meant to house most of Red Hook's dock workers and families. 39 acres of identical structures and 30 residential buildings that would eventually hold 2,800 apartments. LaGuardia himself even buried the cornerstone here in February of 1939. Included in that cornerstone was a time capsule that contained photos of the old neighborhood. I mean, I'd love to check those out. If anyone has a shovel, let's go find it. The Red Hook houses, they eased blight somewhat, but had no effect on the surging crime industry on the docks here. By the 1940s, informants who tried to call attention to mob control of labor unions would find themselves disappeared, as they say. Their bodies found weeks later in New Jersey landfills. The waterfront was controlled by a syndicate of mobsters that newspapers refer to as Murder, Inc., and in particular was controlled by Albert Anastasia, also known as the Mad Hatter who led the Longshoremen's Union even as he became the most powerful members of the burgeoning American Mafia. It would take newspaper writers like Malcolm Johnson and a few mob stoolies to uncover the corruption, and federal crackdowns finally arrived at the formation in 1951 of New York's racket-busting Waterfront Commission, which you'll not be surprised to know was originally based right here in Red Hook. Now, this entire story thus far sounds very gritty, very violent, very cinematic, of course. And writers have always been allured to Red Hook in some fashion. Thomas Wolfe wrote about the neighborhood and lived nearby, as did the xenophobic occult author H.P. Lovecraft, who literally placed the mouth of hell here in a 1925 story called The Horror at Red Hook. Death of a salesman playwright, Arthur Miller, found great fascination in the crime of the Brooklyn waterfront. He even lived nearby in Brooklyn Heights. In 1950, he penned a screenplay called The Hook, based on Red Hook's waterfront crime, and brought the screenplay to Hollywood alongside director Elia Kazan. Now, it was never produced because, this being America now in the 1950s, producers wanted Miller to turn all the gangsters into communists. Two years later, though, Kazan actually did develop a film on the subject, his famous On the Waterfront, partially based on the ideas of Arthur Miller's The Hook. 
Miller, meanwhile, took his experiences in a different direction with his Brooklyn play, A View from the Bridge. Now, nobody knew, of course, then in the 1950s that they were witness not only to the end of the Brooklyn waterfront, but the beginning of some truly troubled times. After reaching out to the needs of Red Hook in the 1930s, Robert Moses and the city then seemingly cut it out of the picture. Moses originally wanted a bridge from Battery Park to Brooklyn over the length of the East River. When he was rebuffed, he created the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel in 1950, which jets underneath the East River and comes out at Red Hook. Then, to connect the tunnel with the Verrazano Narrow Bridge, which was also being constructed, he built the Gowanus Expressway, a highway that literally sails into the sky, darkening the entire eastern edge of the neighborhood. All this infrastructure decimated Red Hook, but that wasn't even the worst thing to happen. That would be the debut of a seemingly simple invention, the steel shipping container, those large rectangular boxes. They look like the back of semi-trucks, basically. Developed in the 1950s, these allowed producers to ship safely in greater numbers, more efficiently, and of course, less prone to theft and damage. However, this also had the effect of killing the Red Hook basins and their port industries. Many of the bigger container ports are now in New Jersey. There, is, there still is one here in Red Hook, which opened in 1981, but it doesn't employ as many people. As a result, residents rapidly fled Red Hook. By the 1960s, even the trolley service had vanished. Remember those lovely front yard buildings, the lovely little gardens in front of them that I mentioned that were designed by Richard Butts? Well, the residents there were so appalled by what Red Hook meant by this time, and since the expressway now physically separated them, they invented another name and called themselves Carroll Gardens, and promptly received a historical neighborhood designation. Unfortunately for the, by the 1970s, mostly African-American and Latino populations of the Red Hook houses, it was a very trying time, with the highest crime rates in the city, the streets ruled by gangs of ruffians with names like the Homicide Dozen, the Cobras, and the Murder Junkies. With nothing but empty warehouses and a lack of street traffic, violence and drug usage skyrocketed. In the 1990s, it was infamously the subject of an article in Life magazine called The Downfall of a Neighborhood and proclaimed one of the worst places to live in all of the United States. To this day, most of Red Hook's residents still live at the Red Hook houses. The rest of Red Hook, the back or the point as they sometimes call it, well, since the late 1990s has seen some rather surprising signs of repurposing. A small artist community attracted by these large empty lofts and warehouses came here in the 1990s, and over time a bit of light gentrification has occurred here, especially near a stretch of property around Van Brunt Street. The Italian-influenced area of Columbia Street has also come to life with bars and restaurants, taking advantage of its incredible views of the Manhattan skyline. In 2006, a portion of the decaying Atlantic Basin was boosted with the arrival of Carnival Cruises, who moved its passenger terminal here. Today, the sumptuous Queen Mary II, the Queen Elizabeth II, and two other cruise vessels dock here. Big box retailers have come to Red Hook, too, in the form of Home Depot, the big fairway supermarkets here. And in 2008, the Swedish furniture store IKEA moved into the Erie Basin and turned the region around here into a well-manicured parkland. While this was a controversial move for many of the native residents, few have complained about the IKEA water taxi, 
which links Red Hook to downtown Manhattan. Today you have to pay, I think, like $5 for a ride unless you're buying something from Ikea. So just go in for $5 and like buy a couch or something. But it's hard to know what will ultimately happen here in Red Hook. There's still a big question mark over it. Let's just say in 2008, something quite loathsome arrived, namely the cast of MTV's The Real World Brooklyn, which moved into a renovated 1850s warehouse called Pier 41. Today, I think in that space, they, you can have like weddings and large dinners, functions like that. But there are still some holdouts to the old days of Red Hook. There's a waterfront museum that sits in the harbor within an old 1914 wooden barge that you can visit to get a little taste of the old days. And of course, very nearby, there's always Sonny's Bar, a nice, worn, salty reminder of the old days owned by a lifelong resident of Red Hook. Now, I recommend doing a little bit of research on transportation before heading out there to explore. And when you do go, make sure to make your way to the Louis Valentino Jr. Park and stand out on that newly built pier there, where you can do something that's very unusual and you cannot do in any other neighborhood. Basically, you can stare eye to eye into the face of the Statue of Liberty. The statue is situated to face towards France, but Red Hook, sitting here in the middle, is directly in our sights. I'll have some illustrations and photos of the old day on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. You can join us on Twitter and Facebook now. I hope you enjoyed this little walk through Red Hook. If you're interested in this type of New York history, we have a few other podcasts in our back catalog you might be interested in. One on the history of Williamsburg, and also a show that relates a lot to this one called Corlear's Hook and the Pirates of the East River. So dredge those up if you're interested. As I said, we'll be back in just two or three more weeks with a full-length episode. Thank you very much for listening. Have a happy 2012. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <laughs> <laughs>